And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear, down, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could, they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. May God bless to us the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you, Greg and Bethany. We're in Luke 19. And uh, this is the beginning of Holy Week. And uh, I, I pray that this is going to be a special week for all of us as we take some additional time to contemplate on the reason that our sins are forgiven. March 29th, 33 AD. An obscure Jewish rabbi, not part of the Jewish religious establishment, has been lodging a few miles outside of Jerusalem. It's the week before the Jewish High Holy Holiday of Passover. The celebration of God's liberating the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. This teacher comes, but he is not without controversy. His words indicate a fundamental disdain for the Jewish religious leadership. But with that being said, whenever one of them comes to him in humility, seeking him for instruction, they are greeted with warmth and compassion. This teacher was different. Not only did he teach the scriptures, he also made claims about himself that seemed to indicate that he was a king or someone special. Perhaps the Jewish leadership feared that he himself, his claims of his kingship, could cause 
them problems with the Roman government who held that Caesar alone was king. Perhaps his talk of destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days caused them some alarm. At any rate, their hatred of this teacher was pronounced. At the same time, the people seemed to love the teacher. He taught clearly and with authority. He healed people, multiplied food and fed people. He related to the lowly and the down and out that were, were rejected by others, proclaiming a message of the coming of the kingdom, the arrival of a kingdom, and that they should turn from their sins and repent. As this teacher approached Jerusalem with his disciples, he called for a donkey to be brought. His disciples took off their outer garments and laid them on the beast before he mounted it. And, they, and as he entered the capital city, crowds gathered and shouted in acclamation and waved palm branches in celebration while the Jewish leadership sneered. No one could have possibly known. If they had listened to his words, maybe. But in a few short days, without a shot being fired, this obscure teacher would turn the world upside down forever. And his name was Jesus, which translated in English means God saves. What picture begins to develop as we see Jesus enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? That's the question that I want to wrestle with today. What picture begins to develop as we see Jesus enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? In order to do this right, we have to get some context. We have to get some background. Our text this morning begins with these words. It says, it says, as Excuse me, it says, as they heard these, sorry, it says, as he, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So what are these things that he's talking about? So let's, let's talk about the background of his arrival and what these things are in terms of what Jesus was about to do. These things refers to, I think, what came right before, the parable of the Minas. So I'm going to read that. And let's just make some observations to get some context before we go forward. This is uh, Luke 19, 11 and following. We see this. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. And I love that Luke does this for us. Why? Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed, his followers, the crowd, they supposed that the kingdom of God was, a, was to appear immediately. So you get, I love this. The primary reason for this parable, Luke tells us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and everybody is thinking, great, he's going to set up the kingdom. He'll drive out the Romans. It's going to be wonderful for us. That's what they're thinking. But he tells a parable instead. He, therefore, he said, therefore, a nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Let's just stop right there. 
This nobleman is, get, is heading off to a long trip in a far country to receive the kingdom. Get this in your mind. So he's, he's left. And then the citizens, they, they get a delegation together of people, and they, they send them along to tell whoever's going to give this person the kingdom, the nobleman the kingdom, we do not want this guy reigning over us. It's important. When he returned, having received the kingdom, so apparently the delegation had no effect, Having returned the kingdom, he ordered these servants to he ordered these servants to, to whom he had given the money to be called to him that they might know what they, what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, "Lord, your mina has made ten minas more." And he said to him, "Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities." And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. This is the kingdom that he now has reign over. He's delegating authority, right? Verse 20, then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit and reap what you do not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might collect, I might have collected interest, collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, I think that, I think that scholars, and, and you and I can agree, because Luke tells us in the text, that this parable that Jesus told was a parable that indicated that he wasn't going to set up the kingdom right away. That, that he's kind of like the, the nobleman that goes away on the long journey to receive the kingdom. And he's going to leave behind him, well, there's, there's kind of three groups of people that are kind of left behind. One is his enemy. That's the, that's the people that sent the delegation that said, we will not have this man rule over us. We don't want that. This is the ones who reject the, the master or the nobleman's authority. And we live in that world today, don't we? We live in a world where there's a whole bunch of people that say, we do not want God to reign over me. And so we hear things like, there is no God. Or God is just a made-up figment of everybody's imagination or whatever. But this is, this is the enemy. And then there's two other groups. There's the first group, which is the good servants or the faithful servants. These are the ones who employ the minas faithfully. The, the nobleman set them in charge. Of, they said, hey, here's some, here's some money. Go do business with it. Earn some more money. And they did. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's exactly what they did. They were faithful to carry out the mission that they were given. But the third group in this parable is the fearful servants. You could say these were bad servants, whatever, hypocrites. You know, They, they said they were going to do business with the money, but then they didn't at least one. So these are the ones that do not employ the minas faithfully. 
Now, I, I want you to keep this in context, this background in context, because I, I believe that this is going to paint us a, a this is going to paint a picture for us that's going to help us over Holy Week. Because we're going to see, even as Jesus enters Jerusalem, we're going to see a group of people that would be easily considered his enemies. The, the Jewish religious, religious leadership. These are his enemies. They do not want Jesus ruling over them at all. But then you're going to find two other groups, these servants, the good servants and the, and the wicked servants. And they're going to take some, it's going to take some time to ferret out exactly who's who and what's what. So keep that in mind. The second thing, the second part of the picture that begins to develop is about authority. About authority. Who is in authority at Jesus' arrival? Now, I, I, I really love this whole account of the cult. The cult, this, this young donkey that Jesus is going to ride in to Jerusalem on. Why do I love it? Well, over the course of Holy Week, you know, in Luke's account... Things are going to get pretty chaotic. They're going to get pretty tumultuous. Uh, the, the Jewish religious leadership is going to be consistent in its adversarial nature against Jesus. But the crowd, the group of people that claim to be his servants, they're going to slowly turn against him. Until on Good Friday, we're going to hear those words, crucify him, crucify him. It's, it's Palm Sunday. It's Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of Hosanna. But by Good Friday, what we call Good Friday, crucify him. Crucify him. Over the course of this week, if you read along in Luke's account, you're going to see perhaps why that is. Why these folks that are now celebrating, are, their hearts are going to be turned towards getting rid of this Jesus. I'm going to do something different this week. Uh, uh, right when the pandemic started and we didn't meet for a, a few weeks, uh, I did this thing on Facebook during, uh, during the lunch hour called Lunchtime with Pastor Scott. I did it for about 15, 20 minutes a day, uh, and I don't remember how many weeks I did it. But anyway, this week on Holy Week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm going to do that again this week, and I'm going to kind of talk about the passages, a little bit of, of the passages throughout Holy Week, uh, and I would encourage you to join, or if you can't catch it at lunch because your schedule doesn't allow, uh, it'll be there on, on the Facebook, on the church Facebook page uh, for you to look on, at, on record. But who is in authority? As the week progresses, it's going to feel like Jesus is completely out of control. As, they, as they, he's arrested and as he's tried in this completely corrupt court system that's going on, uh, not only by the Jews, but also by the Roman government. This completely corrupt court system, it's going to feel like Jesus is not in control. But we have this account, the account of the cult, to signal to us who is in authority, who is in control. So he sends, he sends his disciples to go get this cult, one that no one's ever ride, rid on, ridden on. And when he says, bring it to me, if somebody asks you, why do you need this? You're supposed to tell them, the Lord has need of it, and they'll let you do it. And that's exactly what happens. They go, they get the colt, they untie it. Hey, what are you doing with my colt? The Lord has need of it. 
Oh, okay. And so it's this brief glimpse, this little account of this, of this animal and these men uh, illustrate to us who is really in authority. Because this, over the course of Holy Week, is going to feel like Jesus has no authority, but the reality is quite different. Peter uh, and the apostles, this is from the book of Acts. We've been studying the book of Acts. Uh, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The reality of the situation that we live in today, you and I as, as believers, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, is this. We live in the United States of America in the state of Ohio in the county of Delaware in the city of Delaware. Many of you live in Delaware. Some of you live in other cities. And we are all under the authority of the governing, the government, the human government above us. We're under their authority. But for us, the ultimate authority in our lives is God and not men. So when our government, we, we've been commanded by God to submit to the government up until the point where they tell us that we must not do what God commands us to do or we must do what God forbids. And then we say with Peter, we must obey God rather than men. In the lives of the Christians, in the lives of the Christ followers, God is really in authority. And he's in authority in this account as well. He's also in control. He's also in control of this situation, and that is brilliantly illustrated by the cult, the donkey. I know, and you know, that based on the events that have unfolded in our lives in this last week, whether it's Nashville or whatever, the cultural currents that are happening in our lives today, that are happening in this world today, are strong, and they are sweeping many people along in them, right? And it can feel like that the Bible, that God, that Jesus, that they've lost their substance, they've lost their, you know, their staying power, whatever. And I want to just assure you that if you look back over the pages of history, if you look back in the span of time, one reality emerges over and over again, and that is God is in control. And we need to remember that. It's a stabilizing truth to hang on to in times just like the ones we're in now. We were reminded that Psalm 115.3 says this, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. All right. The next thing. The attitude of the crowd at his arrival. The attitude of the crowd at his arrival. Upon Jesus' arrival, we see two distinct groups of people uh, that are developing in this picture. It's a picture that we've t we have in our minds of, of what's going on at the triumphal entry. Group number one are the, the, the celebrants, the people that are waving palm branches and laying down their outer garments. Outwardly, they are professing, they are celebrating honor. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, keeping in mind that Jesus just told a parable to illustrate that he's not going to set up the kingdom now. So these folks, I, I, I just want to poke at you a little bit and, and get you to think. These folks who are waving these palm branches and laying down their cloaks, what do they really want? Because outwardly they're showing to this teacher honor and they're saying Hosanna and he's the king. But inwardly, what do they really want? And over the course of the week, what are they going to, what's going to happen inside their hearts, the heart, 
biblically, we believe, is the seat of the mind, the will, and the emotion, right? What's going to happen in their hearts when they realize he's not setting up the kingdom now? That the things that they want, whether that be liberation from the, from the Roman Empire or to not be under the thumb of the, the, the Jewish religious leadership, whatever it is that these people want, what Jesus came to do was at the same time not that and better. But because it's not what they want, their hearts are going to turn. James talks about this a little bit. James talks about uh, when we ask God for wisdom, he says, let them ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person is not so, uh, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What is it about us that we don't want to be honest with ourselves sometimes or honest with each other that sometimes the things that we want deep down in our hearts are not what God is offering. Does that make sense? That we're not recognizing sometimes that, that, that our desires are corrupted by our sin and that we need to realign our desires with what God desires. What we want to pretend, we, we want to pretend as people that we love Jesus, but we're sometimes not all that interested in walking in his ways when the rubber hits the road. When it's, when it's expedient for us to do so, we'll, we'll yell, Hosanna, Hosanna, we'll dress up, we'll, we'll, we'll put our cloaks down, Hosanna in the highest. But when we're not getting what we want because our desires are misguided, we're double-minded. We've got one, we've got part of our mind on the world, and we've got part of our mind on Christ. We're double-minded, and we're not, we should not be surprised when, we're, when the cultural currents grab us and sweep us along. We must, we must not be that way. We'll see that that's very destructive as the week goes on. But then group two is the, the religious leaders, the, the the scribes, the, the, the chief priests, they are practicing outward rebellion. Jesus, correct your disciples. And they've got inward rebellion too. I mean, at least they're, I, I appreciate these guys for their honesty. They don't want to have anything to do, do with Jesus. They're the people in the parable of the minus that says, we don't want this man to rule over us. I, uh, I, I'm going to admit, I, I watch a, a YouTube channel of a guy who is a business owner, and he, was, he did most of his life, he had a business in New York City, and then he moved it to a different state. And uh, in this new state, people are much more polite. It's a southern state. I think it's Texas. And uh, he says, one of the things he misses about New York City most of all is that when somebody hates your guts in New York City, they just look you in the eyeball and say, I hate your guts. Everything you're doing is wrong. You're a terrible businessman, and, uh, uh, and I don't appreciate the way that you, that, you know, you didn't do, my, didn't do the service that I wanted you to do. I hate you. He's like, it sounds really harsh until you get down to Texas, and uh, people express their hatred much differently like this. Bless your heart. <laughs> Which I guess in Texan means I hate your guts, but they don't want to say it that way. So he says, I'm, he says, I'm really having culture shock down here. I'm trying to figure out what, if they're pleased with what I'm doing for them or they're not pleased with what I'm doing because I get a lot of bless your heart. Anyway, 
I appreciate the honesty of these chief priests who's just, just they don't like Jesus and they're going to let everybody know it. Now, listen, he, 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 he walks by, he, and, the, and the, the Pharisees say to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples, and he says to them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That just made me think of Psalm 96 and many other places in the Psalms that say things like this. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. If the people won't proclaim, then nature will that God is awesome. Okay, next point. Let's talk about Jesus. Jesus' great concern at his arrival. He arrives in Jerusalem, and the text tells us that in ver beginning in verse 41, that he kind of has an emotional moment here. It says he draws near to the city, and he wept over it. Jesus is a Jewish man. He's a Jewish rabbi, and he's coming into the capital of, and, the, and the center of Jewish worship this should be a joyous occasion, right? No, it's not. He draws near to the city and he weeps over it. Why? He says this, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. The things that make for peace. I want to I just share with you something that maybe you've thought about before, maybe you haven't. In the Bible, and I think it's 2 Corinthians, it talks about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow when we sin. Godly sorrow, I'm sorry, worldly sorrow, the best way I can explain to you worldly sorrow quickly is to say this, anytime a pro athlete or a politician or somebody in the public eye gets themselves in trouble and they stand at a press conference and they say, if I've done anything wrong to hurt anyone or anybody's upset with me, I'm sorry. Right? Uh, not really owning what they've done or whom they've hurt or really e even attempting to make any restitution for it, just saying, hey, if anybody just doesn't like me for the things that I've done, I'm not taking them back. I'm just saying I'm sorry. Whereas godly sorrow, the Bible, that passage tells us in 2 Corinthians, leads to repentance, to, to turning around. And that's more like Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus comes down and he meets Jesus. He has an encounter with Jesus. And he says, if I have, you know, the people that I've wronged, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. You just make restitution. It's going to hurt, but it's going to hurt in a good way, right? He's, he's genuinely sorry for, for his sin in a way that causes him to try to make it right. Well, in the same kind of path, let, let, let me, let's just talk about the difference between what Jesus is talking about here, the things that make for peace, and kind of what we think about peace from a worldly perspective. Well, I'm, going to call it, I'm going to call it worldly peace. This is, I think, the way we think about worldly peace. If we could just defeat all of our enemies, there would be peace. Now, I got a question for you. It's a test question, so you're going to have to answer it. I think there is a, a conflict going on right now, if I'm not mistaken, in the news between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Yeah? Okay. Let's say, let's say one of those sides, doesn't matter which one, but let's say one of them wins. They 
they kill enough people and break enough things that the other side says, we surrender, we surrender, please, let's have peace. Is that peace? Is that truly peace? Is everybody uh, that's a part of that now completely happy and they're, they have good, warm feelings towards the other side? Is that true? No, not at all. Hey, listen, uh, uh, wasn't World War II called the War to End All Wars? Is that World War I? That was World War I. The, world, the War to End All Wars. Did it? No, we had World War II. Did that finalize everything? Has everything been peaceful on the earth since World War II? It is not. It is not. Why? Because worldly peace, Teddy Roosevelt, Roosevelt talked about this, right? He said, speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. To quote the great prophet, Tony Stark, not a prophet, fictional character, who said, my old man once said, peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. That's what worldly peace is. And it will never produce what Jesus is talking about. Never. Never. I'm approaching my 50th year on this earth. And in my, in my time on this earth, here's what I've observed. One political party takes power. And they go too far. They make rules and regulations that a whole bunch of other people don't like. And so the other political party takes power. And then they go too far. And they make laws and regulations and rules that a whole bunch of people don't like. And then the other political party takes power. Is there peace? There's no peace. Wars happen. A whole bunch of men get killed. Mostly men. Some women and children. But the generations that are left behind eventually grow up into men. Eventually grow up into women with a smoldering hatred directed towards those that killed their fathers and their grandfathers. And then war breaks out again. These are not the things that make for peace. What are we talking about here? What, what is Jesus talking about when he talks about the things that make for peace? He's talking about, of course, what happens when people from every tribe and tongue and nation on this planet understand the gospel message, understand that they're all sinners, that the, problem, the problems that we face are not primarily problems that are out there. They're problems that are right here inside the sin-stained human heart. And that what we need is for God to remove from us a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, a heart of compassion, a heart of love to be forgiven of our sins so that our relationship with God can be right and to be uh, transformed in such a way that now we can relate to our fellow man in love. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the forgiveness of our sins, the Holy Spirit coming into our lives and helping us to walk in a complete, live in a completely different way. That's the things that make for peace. Our unity in Christ. The church is a small, or should be, a small picture of the kingdom that is to come. I know a lot of you in this room, and we don't agree about so many things. But you know what we do agree with? And I love this about the church. We agree that we're sinners. 
We agree that left to our own sin, we're going to die. We agree that Jesus came, paid the penalty for our sins, and we've decided to follow him. We're all in the process of growing and changing and becoming more like him. And when we have a, a, an argument or something, if it's not an area of preference, it's an area of doctrine, we go to God's word and we, we resolve it that way. I love that about this. These are the things that make for peace. And what Jesus said is, you didn't understand when, when I came on the scene. You didn't understand the things that make for peace. They're hidden from your eyes. And then he paints a picture that I find very stark. Because he says, you didn't understand. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, Jesus says, I have, I have said these things to you that you may have peace, right? In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is Jesus saying, look, I've already won. I've already won the victory. He, he makes reference that you did not know the time of your visitation. That Greek word means visitation by God. Some English translations have that in there. You did not understand your, the time of your visitation by God. And so what does he say? He says, you will be, however, visited by your enemies. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The people of God, the Jews, did not recognize their time of visitation. And so they will be visited by their enemies. This is, these are hard truths. What's God Because our master, our, our Jesus, he's away on a long journey. He's, he's going to receive his kingdom. We're here now, and we're to be fruitful with what we've been given, the gospel message. Jesus reminds us, though, that you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. See, see that you are not alarmed, uh, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Why is God delaying? Why is God allowing the things that are happening to happen? Why is God allowing Nashville to happen? The only thing that we can conclude is to, to look at Scripture and say that God desires that all men are saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He's, he's patiently forbearing us in our sin. He's patiently allowing those of us that hold the minas, those of us that hold the gospel message to be fruitful in spreading the gospel, in telling others about the gospel, telling others about him and leading them into a relationship with Christ. Will you be fruitful with the treasure that you've been given? Or are you committed to trying to produce worldly peace through worldly methods? Cut to the end, it won't work. We have, so much we have something so much better at our disposal as the church than tanks or arms. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the things that make for peace if we will take them and be fruitful with them. Last couple of points, quickly. Jesus' mission-driven work upon his arrival. Jesus' mission-driven work upon his arrival. Look what Jesus does as soon as he arrives in Jerusalem. It says verse 45, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. First thing Jesus is going to tackle when he gets to the temple is he's going to tackle corruption. He's going to drive it out. He's going to drive it out. 
Uh, the only thing, the only analogy I could think of to, to help you with your minds is, is Disneyland, which is a terrible analogy. But at Disneyland, every Disney World, every ride ends with a what? What's at the end of every ride at Disney World? A gift shop. They've already taken you for the entry fee to get in. Now they want to shake you upside down and get the last coins out of your pants, you know, before you leave the park. So you got to sit through the torture of it's a small world, the ride, and then you go to got to go through it's a small world, the gift shop, right? And they make it so you have to go through the gift shop to get out. This is not a great analogy, but what I'm saying is, is that they, they've turned the temple, this place that's supposed to be a house of prayer, into an attraction, you're supposed to come there and, and humbly before God give your, make your sacrifice before him of your, of your flock or, or of a pigeon, a turtle dove. And there are vendors there, not only selling animals, you know, get your spotless lamb here, get your turtle dove, get your pigeon here. But I'm, I'm, in my mind, I can't escape the reality that there's also some schmo there selling a, my mom and dad went to the temple in, in Jerusalem and all I got was this lousy smock, smock. Jesus drives them out. He drives them out. He doesn't want that to, he, he's angry with the corruption and he's, he's in righteous anger to do so. First Timothy 6, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money. Not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Because of the love of money, the temple has become corrupted. Jesus drives them out. He also begins to dispense wisdom. He's teaching them. It says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. He has a message. He has something to share. He has the wisdom. He has what the disciples called, what Peter called, the words of eternal life, and he's going to, in his last days on this earth, dispense those out to people. So he's driving out corruption, he's dispensing wisdom, and he's also defeating his adversaries. The text says, as he, uh, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. He's, he's not been there long, and they want him dead. They want him destroyed, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Test question. This is another test question. This is like a test intensive day. What gives me, some of you may not agree with this, what gives me the authority as the pastor of this church? I, I guess, but let me say it differently. Who gives me the authority as the pastor of this church? We do. You do, right? You, filled with the Holy Spirit, took a vote right? And decided that I'm going to fill this position. Well, who do you think makes the chief priests and the scribes and the, when it says uh, the principal men of the people, who gives them the authority to be the chief priests and the scribes and the chief principal men of the people? The people. They know where their bread is buttered. So what are they not going to do? They're not going to take this incredibly popular teacher, the one that everybody's, you know, sitting there like this, hanging on his every word, and kill him. Why? Because they're driven by the fear of man. Fear of man lays a snare, Proverbs says, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare. 
These are, uh, listen, I can't, I can't stress this enough. These chief priests, these principal men, they are not, if they were really doing what, what they thought was right in the eyes of God, if they thought that it was the right thing to do, which I can't imagine they could get there with Scripture, that they thought it was the right thing to do to destroy Jesus, they should have destroyed Jesus. These men are not operating in the fear of the Lord. They're operating in the fear of man. Anyone who operates in the fear of man is an extraordinarily dangerous person. I, just, I can't stress that enough. If you, find yourself, if you find yourself working with someone who's operating in the fear of man, you're operating with someone who's doing this. Every day they get up and do this. Which way is the wind of culture blowing? I'm going to go that way. Every pastor that's like that, every leader that's like that is a very dangerous person. So he is defeating, Jesus is defeating his adversaries. Now, I hope that you've seen, as Jesus has entered into Jerusalem for the beginning of Holy Week, a picture start to develop. But, but here's the picture. Here's the picture. I, I, and I'm a being a bit symbolic here, but this is the picture. The picture that develops at Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is a sharp image of Jesus standing in front of or beside a blurry image of humanity. Jesus is sharp. He is in control. He is in authority. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's come to accomplish. He knows the things that make for peace. And he has come in. He's driven out. He's trying to drive out corruption, dispense wisdom, and also defeat his enemies. And in the meantime, humanity is blurry. What I mean by blurry, I'm speaking somewhat symbolically. We don't know, we don't know what they're going to do. You've got the chief priests, they're, you know, got the, the Jewish religious leaders, they're trying to destroy him. You've got some servants like the, the faithful servants who are really trying to be fruitful with what Jesus is doing. And then you've got these other servants that are bad servants, fruitless servants, that are like, eh, I don't know. This is the chaotic scene that Jesus enters into. Humanity looks very blurry, but Jesus himself is a very sharp image. What can we take away from this message today? What can we, how can we apply it? Well, uh, perhaps, the, perhaps the Holy Spirit's already laid some things on your heart. I don't want to mess with that. Um, and so, you know, that's between you and the Lord. But here's a few things I thought of. Number one, it's okay to weep over the state of the world, but also remain hopeful that God is at work. We carry with us as the church the message of eternal life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are like the servants with the mind is to be fruitful with it. Are you being intentional to be fruitful with it? I, I, have, found, I have found that if I earn a dollar and I stick that dollar in my dresser drawer wrapped up in a handkerchief, especially in these days, it becomes less valuable over time. Right? A dollar now is not worth a dollar five years ago. It's worth like 80 cents, 87 cents or something. No, if I want to earn, if I want to make that dollar multiply, I have to apply it. I have to buy something and, and do, perform some work and, and earn some extra money. You get the idea. We have to be fruitful with the gospel. We have to be sharing it. We have to be trying to live it out and... Uh, and be at the Lord's work. Secondly, and this is, again, a very stabilizing truth that we all need to keep in mind, that God is in control. 
yes, it seems like many times, it seems like this past week with Nashville, it seems like the way the culture is going, things can seem very out of control to us, very troubling, and they are. But we also have to understand the Bible bears this out over and over again, that God is in control. And then focus on the peace that only God can give. Not worldly peace, godly peace through a right relationship with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that yields a right relationship with your neighbor, a loving relationship with your neighbor. This week, again, I'm going to be doing lunchtime with Pastor Scott at noon on Monday through Thursday. I'd encourage you to check that out. If you don't do anything else this week, take the passage of Scripture that we read today, Luke 19, and read this week one, two, three, a dozen times if you want to, all the way through the end of Luke, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and, and make this a week that if, if maybe you've fallen out of the habit of reading your Bible and praying and all these types of things, get back in the habit of it this week, and, and that's a really good place to start, Luke, Luke 20 to the end. Father, your goodness to us and, and your mercy and grace to us that's it, been revealed in your son, Jesus Christ, is so amazing, so incredible. We're so undeserving of it, and yet you've given it. Father, we want to be faithful servants fruitful with that with which you have entrusted us. Fully recognizing that you're the one that's in control. Fully recognizing that the gospel is that which makes for peace on this earth. Let us never forget that at the birth of your son Jesus, one of the titles that was applied to him in the Old Testament prophets was the Prince of peace. We are servants of the Prince of Peace. We've been entrusted with the gospel of the Prince of Peace. May we be fruitful with it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good Holy Week. You're dismissed.